And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome, everyone, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today as we're rocking and rolling through the week, talking about defending, explaining, sharing the faith with others. That is the business of apologetics. And uh, all of us are called in Scripture to be apologists, to be able to give an explanation for the hope that's in us. And so we need to be able to meet people where they are, and explain with clarity and charity and confidence uh, the reasons why we believe the things that we believe as Catholics. And one person that has done a lot of great work in that, especially uh, meeting people where they are. I mean, uh, he really is the king of common sense when it comes to apologetics. John Martinoni is going to be on the show. And on the other side of the break, we're going to talk about his brand new book, Blue Collar Apologetics, and uh, we're working through the book, actually. We've had a series of programs because I love his uh, field-tested, very practical, down-to-earth approach to defending the faith. So we're going to cover the papacy in this section. So uh, John has his own technique, you know, his own uh, you know, dojo skills, I guess, <laughs> with uh, tackling uh, issues in concerning the papacy. So that's going to be a ton of fun. It's always fun to have John on the show. I don't know, the energy level in the, in the dojo kicks up a couple notches when John's on the air. And, uh, but that's coming up on the other side of the break. On this side of the break, we're going to sharpen our critical thinking skills with a Finding the Fallacy segment. Today's Finding the Fallacy is the Ends Justify the Means Fallacy. And we also meet an early church father. Today's early church father is Didymus the Blind. Didymus the Blind, very influential figure in church history and uh, very helpful in apologetics as well. Um, and that's why I love this program. God willing, it's a good program, but it's also a program that's good for you. And if you're a listener, a consistent listener and hands-on apologetics, you realize over a course of the week, you learned five informal fallacies to help you think critically about some of the arguments or positions or advertising or messages that are given to you. Actually, uh, four and a propaganda technique. And you also meet five early church fathers. So, you know, listening to the show, you're going to have your toolkit filled with all sorts of critical information that would be, I think, very helpful in discussions with non-Catholics, discussions with anybody who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. So, um, yeah, so that's our docket for today. So I want to welcome all of you to the show, beginning with our live stream audience on social media. Also, I want to welcome all of you listening on radio around the country and also via podcast around the world through our handy-dandy phone app and uh, or our flagship website, which is virginmostpowerfulradio.org or all the other distribution centers out there. Welcome aboard, folks. Great to have you with us. And as always, uh, if you'd like to contact me, uh, please do. The official dojo mailbox is questions at handsonapologetics.com. Love hearing from you. 
and uh, also uh, yesterday had a fun uh, discussion with Vanessa Forsblad, who's a young apologist who is rocking and rolling on social media. And by the way, she was a guest recommendation. So I, I, I you know, I can't be everywhere so you know, on social media. So someone said, hey, she is doing a fantastic job. You need to check her out. And I uh, looked up the, her uh, videos and so on. And great stuff. So she's been on the show. I'm hoping she'll become a regular. Because uh, it's just a thrill to talk to her and, and uh, you know, tons of energy. And it's hopeful, too, because there's all these young apologists there coming up in the world. You know, I'm kind of the old guard. I, I grew up during the Wild West days, <laughs> back with Carl Keating, when he was just starting uh, Catholic Answers with Pat Madrid. And uh, it was crazy back then with the the fundamentalist crisis. People were leaving, becoming fundamentalist Protestants, all sorts of weird stuff like that. And and uh, it really was the Wild West days because there there wasn't uh, the internet like we have it today. There weren't any full time ministries outside of uh, Catholic Answers, and that was just starting. And there, quite frankly, there weren't very many new uh, books and, and other information out. Uh, back then, it was mostly old stuff. And uh, some of it was helpful for fundamentalism. Some of it wasn't. And, of course, that was uh, uh, before Han, you know, before his conversion. And uh, today, you know, uh, years, decades later, I'm glad to say that there are many different ministries out there. There are many different apologists that have uh, stepped in and uh, was able to uh, explain, defend the faith. And uh, fundamentalist uh, fundamentalism actually kind of disappeared. But now we have all sorts of other enemies. So we need to uh, keep this movement young and uh, to... Uh, you know, pass on all the knowledge and skills that we've gained, the old guards gained, and fortify the new so that they're able to meet the challenge and overcome them. So uh, anyway, uh, so please, uh, if you have a guest recommendation, shoot me an email, questions at handsonapologetics.com. Give me contact info and a link to the stuff. I'll check it out, and hopefully we'll, we'll get some more new guests. All right, so let's go to our finding the fallacy for today. The end justifies the means fallacy. Ah, this sounds like a slogan. Well, yeah, it actually is. It's also a fallacy. It's a characteristic behavior of today's society is the belief that the end justifies the means. This means actions people take are justified regardless of how they go about achieving their desired result or end. In fact, this is something actually in Scripture that uh, the Christians, uh, in, this is in uh, the Epistle to the Romans, Paul talks about that we're, we Christians are falsely accused of doing this, of uh, that the end justifies the means, that you might, might do evil, that good may come of it. That's the way he puts it. And, of course, uh, it's fallacious because uh, you could destroy the end by using illicit or evil means to attain it. And uh, therefore, we should always act justly in regards to obtaining just ends and just means. And uh, it it doesn't provide just because, I mean, every, let me put it this way, every sin is motivated, motivated by an apparent good. And that's important to know that something may appear to be good, 
and that might actually motivate us to sin. So uh, the end justifies the means fallacy actually fits well with that because somebody might think they have a good ends and they should do whatever they can to obtain those ends. And who knows, it might not be truly good. And, uh, of course, you're never allowed to use uh, illicit or evil means to obtain even a, a truly good end. And that is our finding of the fallacy for today. The end justifies the means fallacy. And now we're going to meet our early church father for today, who's Didymus the Blind. Didymus was born in Alexandria about the year 313 A.D., was blind about the age of four. Yet he became one of the most learned men and one of the most prolific authors of his age. Under St. Athanasius, Didymus was the head of the catechetical school in Alexandria and was, in fact, its last head. At his death, the school uh, removed to side and uh, shortly closed. It was uh, among Didymus's most famous students, of course, are uh, Jerome and Rufinus. So very influential figure. Didymus was not an especially original thinker, says Jurgen's Faith Early Fathers, but his prodigious memory enabled him to gain a masterful knowledge of philosophy and theology, along with geometry, astronomy, and arithmetic. The contemporaries of Didymus knew him as a man of considerable insight and extreme kindness. There is nothing of invective in his writings. Apparently, Jerome learned very little in this regards from his teacher, says Jurgens. Again, a little slight at Jerome uh, being something of a curmudgeon. But anyway, uh, he is able to show a rather angelic disposition, even when dealing with heresies, condemning the doctrine, but never the person. Consequently, uh, he was well-liked and on good terms, even with the Arians. He remained uh, always a layman and lived as an ascetic outside of Alexandria, even when he was the head of the catechetical school. Didymus's Trinitarian writings are a model of soundness, and his doctrine is correct in general, except that he followed origin in regards to the pre-existence of the soul and the ultimate salvation of all. And uh, in the 6th and 7th centuries, the writings of Didymus suffered the same fate as those of Abergus of Pontus. And uh, he was anathemized because of his originist tendencies. Uh, since no doubt accounts of the fact that the holy man himself was never accorded the title of saint, as well as for the loss of a major part of his writing. So it's not St. Didymus the Blind, it's just simply Didymus the Blind. And again, we lost a lot of his writings because uh, some of his writings had this originist tendency. Uh, amongst the writings we do have, he has a work on the Holy Spirit, which was written sometime before 381. St. Ambrose made use of the Greek text of Didymus's work in his work on the Holy Spirit, in 381, of which St. Jerome, in his usual dungeon, accused him in the instruction of his translation of Didymus's treatise of plagiarism. Jerome's translation was prepared at the suggestion of Pope Damasus. And also he has a work on the Trinity. And uh, I hear the music coming up, so we'll just stop right there. And that is our early church father for today, Didymus the Blind. Coming up on the other side of the break, we have a good friend, John Martinoni. We're going to dive into blue-collar apologetics right after this. 
Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. And we're going to be talking about the papacy and how you can uh, explain the papacy and the foundations to papacy in a very easy and, uh, I think, persuasive way with our guest, John Martignoni. As you know, John was born Catholic, never really learned the faith, and eventually left when he went off to college. He received a B.S. in finance and MBA at the University of Alabama. Uh, you probably know him best from his work on EWTN Open Line. He's the director of the Office of New Evangelization in the Diocese of Birmingham and the president of the Bible Christian Society. So you can check out his stuff at BibleChristianSociety.com. And we're going through his book, which is a fantastic book, a, a book recommended by me for every apologist, especially those starting in apologetics. It's called Blue Collar Apologetics, How to Explain and Defend Catholic Teaching, Common Sense, uh, Simple Logic in the Bible. It's put out by EWTN Publishing. And John Martinoni, welcome to Hands-On Apologetics. Gary, as always, good to be with you. Yeah, so uh, I, I know you're a busy person down there in Alabama. Uh, so what have you been up to since last time we talked? Well, just uh, uh, just today set up a, or well, actually in the last 24 hours, I'd say, set up a luncheon in August with Dr. Peter Kreft coming in, just uh, nailed down a, a women's conference for the diocese beginning, uh, well, beginning, it will be in January, January 14th. It was it was originally meant to be an Advent Women's Conference, but things didn't work out with the venue, so it's going to be a post-Advent Women's Conference. Mm -hmm. So, and then all the same usual stuff, evangelization, you know, apologetics courses here and there, and, you know, same old, same old. <laughs> yeah, the same old, same old for you is, is usually like a uh couple of months worth of work in a day for me so uh one day i'd like to match your energy level <laughs> <laughs> so yeah we're going through your book blue collar apologetics and you know i have always admired your uh the, the way you approach apologetics because it really is it's not heady it's not you know you know pie in the sky academic material it's really very commonsensical Absolutely. That's I tell people, I say, look, um, I have moms telling me that their nine-year-old kids are using my stuff to evangelize their nine-year-old playmates, you know, <laughs> and so, but That's then awesome. I have uh, uh, people with PhDs in chemistry and math, doctors, lawyers, etc., who are using my stuff. So it, it's, it's for everybody, young, old, male, female, rich, poor, middle class everybody can use myself because as you said it's just based on common sense and most normal people i'm not talking about left-wing ideologues right now uh but most normal people have common sense and they can use simple logic and they can recognize truth when they see it you know other than people who say well a man can really be a woman or a woman can really be a man well, you know other than those people, like I said, normal people still have a, a decent amount of common sense, and, and that's what I try to base my stuff on. It's just, you know, hey, it, that just makes sense. 
Yeah. Yeah. And not only that, but it's field tested, too, because yeah, you, you spend a I've lot used, of time in the trenches. Yeah, I've I've talked to probably, uh, you know, I have no idea, but I, I've kind of estimated maybe 2,000, 3,000 uh, Protestants of all different uh, faith persuasions, the whole uh, spectrum of Protestantism uh, from fundamentalist to Lutheran and and uh, uh, Episcopalian, Anglican, and everywhere in between, Baptist, Evangelical, etc. I've talked to a couple, 3,000 of them in the last 25 years, and that's how I've developed all this stuff, because it's stuff that I have actually used in practice and had a great deal of success with. If something doesn't work, I'd well, that that was a flop. I just tossed that out. Something works. It's like, okay, let's keep using that. And so, yeah, absolutely. Field tested 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, w- one area you spend a lot of in your book, uh, Blue Collar Apologetics, is authority, because authority is so important. And today's topic's the papacy. So in your experience, uh, they both are tough to get non-Catholics to talk about because they generally don't really think about things in terms of authority. Which is harder, sol scriptura or talking about the papacy? Well, I'd say probably in in one respect, um, sola scriptura, because no Protestants argue bring up sola scriptura. You know. Th- they all, but a lot of them, most of the ones I talk to, in fact, will bring up an argument against the Pope. So they'll bring up the Pope, you know, like they bring up Mary or purgatory. Well, the Pope is one of those hot, hot topics that Protestants rip into Catholics about. So in that respect, it's easier to get on topic, but to present the Catholic argument it's a little more difficult to do it on the Pope than it is on just the broad category of authority or sola scriptura, uh, because it, it, it's a, a couple more steps when you're talking about the Pope that you have to present than you have with sola scriptura. Sola scriptura is just so easy to, to knock out of the ballpark. It's, it's ridiculous. I, I, just, I still can't understand why anybody who actually thinks about it still believes in it. But the Pope, you know, it's uh, one or two more steps, but it's still not difficult at all to, to get into this and to explain it to a Protestant. Yeah, so it, is there, um, well, actually, the papacy is a pretty big topic because it's not only, you know, uh, it, is there a single leader of the church, you know, papal primacy, you have apostolic succession, you have uh, papal infallibility, uh, even whether or not Peter died in Rome. I mean, th- there are uh, a bunch of, like, subtopics that often feed into the, the topic of the papacy. Yes, absolutely. And, and we've got you covered on pretty much all of them in this book. But the, the main thrust that I try to get people to do is just establish the fact that the Bible very clearly points to one person in charge of the universal church. And once you get that down, then you can start talking about, well, you know, you, you've had popes who were sinners. Well, yeah, every pope was a sinner. You know, beginning with Peter and up through Francis, 
every pope was a sinner. So I, I, I concur. That doesn't mean that there isn't a, a position or, or a, a biblical foundation for the papacy. And, you know, I ask people, I say, well, who's in charge of your church? Oh, the pastor. Oh, so there's one person in charge of your church. Yeah, kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Well, uh, yeah, but, you know, that doesn't mean the pope. It's like, well, your pastor is essentially the pope for your church. He's your pope. He's your theologian. Uh, you know, he, he's, all of, he's your teacher for your church. The pope is our pastor for the entire Catholic church. I said it, it, it just makes sense to have one person in charge, ultimately in charge. Yeah. So you, you mentioned there's a uh, several different um, steps that need to be taken for the papacy. Uh, so what are those steps? Where do we begin? Well, I'll just, and I'll, I'll go through these real quick. But the first, it's several different principles, I would say. The first okay. principle is that there's one church. You know, I mean, Gary, in Matthew sixteen eighteen, Jesus says, and on this rock I will build my churches, Right. No, I will build my church. So Jesus founded one and only one church. I, I think pretty much all Christians, uh, there may be some exceptions, but for the most part, every Christian I've talked to understands and agrees, yes, Jesus founded one and only one church. So that's the first principle. Second principle is that Jesus founded a church that has authority, you know, he says in, in well, in same passage, basically, Matthew 16, uh, verses 16 to 19, Jesus says, you know, thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then in Matthew 18, uh, verses 15 to 18, Jesus says the same thing, except to all the apostles. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then the last thing Jesus does in Matthew 28, before he, he leaves planet Earth to head up to heaven, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he sends the apostles out with authority. So the church that Jesus founded has authority. The third principle is that the church is visible. You know, uh, Jesus talks about a city set on a hill. And that you don't put a lamp under a bushel basket. You know, it's, it's meant to be seen. And, and in Jesus' uh, high priestly prayer at the Last Supper, which we see in, in John, you know, chapters, what, 14, 15, 16, in there, Jesus prays to the Father that the disciples, his disciples will be one so that the world may know that they were sent by the Father, that Jesus was sent by the Father. Well, the world sees not with spiritual eyes, but with worldly eyes. So the world only sees that which is the concrete, the visible. So the church is a visible church. It's not this invisible union of all true believers or anything like that. That's, that's not in Scripture. And, and the other thing is, is, you know, Jesus is the head of the church, He's got a body and a soul. So the church has to have a visible body as well as a soul. So it's visible and invisible. 
And then the fourth principle is that the authority in the church is apostolic authority. Again, you know, Jesus tells the apostles, Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. He's giving his authority to the apostles, and we see the apostles passing on that authority in various places, particularly the apostle Paul in, in Timothy and Titus, that he's passed his authority on to, to Timothy and to Titus. Uh, and he tells them to pass their authority on to others. So what authority? Apostolic authority. Uh, the fifth principle is that this apostolic authority uh, is characterized by the charism of infallibility. You know, Jesus says in John fourteen twenty six, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then in John sixteen thirteen, he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, not part, tr- partial truth, some of the truth, all the truth. Awesome. Yeah, very good. We're chatting with John Martinoni, author of the book, Blue Collar Apologetics, put out by EW10 Publishing. More to come right after this. You're listening to Hands On Apologetics. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with John Martinoni, the blue collar apologist himself. And talking about his brand new book, Blue Collar Apologetics, How to Explain, Defend Catholic Teaching Using Common Sense, Simple Logic in the Bible, put out by EWTM Publishing. And uh, right before the break, John, you laid down some basic principles that you need to uh, establish in order to demonstrate the uh, the papacy. So I don't know if you want to go into uh, more into each individual one or do you want to talk about common objections to each one? Well, what we can do is, uh, well, actually, there was one more I wanted to put down. There was, okay. you know, the first principle, there's one church. Church is authoritative, number two. Number three, church is visible. Number four, the authority of the church is apostolic authority. The fifth principle is the infallibility. Uh, the, the apostolic authority is characterized by the charism of infallibility. And the sixth principle is apostolic succession, which we see was the first order of business for the disciples when they got in, gathered into the uh, upper room. You know, after Jesus had, had uh, uh, risen into heaven and they're gathered in Jerusalem in the upper room, what's Peter do? He says, hey, we need to replace Judas. And so that was the first order of business, was replacing Judas. Why? Because it says he held an office. Uh, the King James Version <clears throat> excuse me, of the Bible says he held a bishopric. He was a bishop. The apostles were bishops. So if there's an office, when the office holder is no longer able to hold the office, if he dies or is otherwise incapacitated, you have to have a new office holder. So you put all those together, and I think it's very easy to see how that leads directly to the Pope. The Pope is simply... One of the office holders, but he's the the premier office holder in the fact that he is the he holds the office of Saint Peter, who was the leader of the apostles, um, and so it is the Pope who is the head of the church because he fills Peter's office, and Peter was the head of the church. 
Um, yeah, I mean, we could do uh, about the Pope specifically, some objections to the Pope. You know, you hear, um, oh, what's, well, the Pope's a sinner. So how, how, could, how could he lead the church? How could he, you know, be infallible and all this? Well, what, what's going on there? They're saying he can't be infallible because he's a sinner. Well, they, they misunderstand what the word infallibility means. Um, you know, Protestants will generally take the word infallibility and say, well, infallibility means you can't make a mistake ever in anything. But that's not how Catholics um, teach infallibility. That's not what it means in Catholic theology. In Catholic theology, infallibility, as you know, and probably most, if not all of your listeners know, infallibility means that the Pope cannot teach error from the chair of Peter to the entire church in the areas of faith and morals. You know, the, the Pope can make errors in terms of economics, politics, um, global warming, you know, this side or that side, and he can personally sin. So that has his sinning has nothing to do with infallibility. So that's one argument. The other argument, people say, well, nowhere does it say anywhere in the Bible, no, nowhere do you see the word pope. And I say, well, yes and no. The word pope is never in any English translation. But what does Pope mean? Pope is basic, is essentially the English transliteration of, of the Greek word for father, papa, uh, papa papas, papa. Um, and so the word father is what Pope, the word Pope really means. So that's why we call him Holy Father. And in um, Isaiah 22, verses 20 to 22, what do we see? We see the Lord talking to Shebna, who's the the king's prime minister. He's he's ruling over the king's household. And he says, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, Shebna, and will bind your girdle on him and will commit your authority to his hand – and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Well, what's the modern-day house of Judah? It's the church. What's the modern-day kingdom of David? It's the church. What's the modern-day Israel? It's the church. So here in Isaiah 22, we see God himself talking to the head of the house of David, to the head of the house of Judah, the the prime minister for the house of Judah, and calling him a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, or a pope. So the word pope, the English word pope, is not in the Bible, but the underlying meaning of pope as, as a, being a father to the household of of Judah to the kingdom of David is in the Bible. And this this passage from Isaiah 22, this is essentially what Jesus was quoting in Matthew 16, where he says to Peter, you know, 
Upon this rock I will build my church. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Isaiah 22 talks about Eliakim getting the key to the kingdom of, of David. Mm-hmm. Matthew 16, Jesus gives Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So the parallels are just unbelievable. And so you, you have to believe that Jesus had Isaiah 22 in mind when he's talking to Peter in, in Matthew 16. And so, the word, again, the English word pope is not in the Bible, but the underlying concept of being a father to the inhabitants of, of the kingdom of, of David is in the Bible. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, so it, that's very important. It's funny how that one line in Matthew 16 is so packed with info. Um, yeah. And it's funny how, you know, Matthew 16 is a very important passage. It's not the only passage we can uh, rely on, but like you said, it actually helps establish a couple of those points. Um, I don't know if it's as popular as it once was, but when I first started apologetics, the the common way to disarm Catholics of using Matthew 16 is to say that Jesus didn't make Peter the foundation stone for his future church, that he actually called him a small stone in the Greek, and upon the large stone, namely himself or Peter's confession, that's what he establishes as his church. Yeah, and and no, that it still is very common argument against uh, when against Catholics when they bring up Matthew sixteen verses sixteen to nineteen. You know, mm-hmm. Jesus says, "Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church." In the Greek, it says, "Thou art Petros, and upon this Petra." I will build my church. Well, they say, see, Peter is Petro, small rock, as you said. Petra, it means large rock. Well, there's disputes as to what Petra actually means. But the thing is, is that's, that's beside the point, because Greek has masculine and feminine genders in, built into the words, just like most people listening are probably familiar with Spanish, at least somewhat, and you have, um, uh, what's a Spanish word that, uh, um, anyway, it's, it's, you know, that the nouns are masculine and feminine. Yeah. So you can't call Peter by a feminine noun. So you can't say, thou art Petra, and upon this Petra I will build my church. That's like calling a, you know, the, a boy named Sue. It's, you would be mm-hmm. saying, thou art Peterina. And upon this uh, rock, I will build my church. Just can't do that. The other thing is, is Jesus was speaking Aramaic. That was the common language of the time in Israel. So what Jesus would have actually said in Aramaic is, Thou art Kepha, or Kepha, and upon this Kepha, I will build my church. And... uh, that's why that's where we get Cephas from. In, in a few places in the New Testament, Peter is called Cephas. Why? It's the transliteration for Kepha. So Jesus said, Thou art Kepha, and upon this Kepha I will build my church. Everyone who heard him there would have known Peter is the rock that Jesus is building his church on. So the, the, the Petros Petra argument from Greek is it doesn't have a leg to stand on yeah yeah i wasn't sure if it's still used because uh 
Uh, it's been a while, but uh, I imagine uh, it's it's probably out there, and I think every Catholic should at least know in the back, you know, how to answer that. And that, yeah, that's a very good point. So, so basically, Jesus is making a wordplay. He's he's equating Peter with the rock. He's not contrasting him. Yes, yes. And the other thing is, is if you said Jesus was not saying Peter is the rock, well, then that whole passage from Matthew sixteen sixteen to nineteen. It's talking about, uh, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You will have the power to, to bind on earth what is bound in heaven. You will have the power to loose on earth what is loose in heaven. My heavenly Father gave you this special insight. You, 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 you. Oh, not you. you know, <laughs> it, right. It, it, that that wouldn't work. I mean, right in all in the middle of those yous, you have to think Jesus all of a sudden said, "Not you." So you, 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 not you, 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 you. No, does not make any sense, even from a grammatical standpoint, from a common sense standpoint, makes no sense whatsoever that Jesus was not referring to Peter as the rock upon which he would build his church. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Yeah, I never could, uh, for the life of me, I never could understand the, uh, you know, that the rock was Christ uh, argument, because, I mean, who else would Jesus build his church upon if not himself? I mean, that's kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, Uh, well, and that's, you know, people will say, well, but Jesus is the rock. Yes, he is. He's also the foundation, but the apostles are the foundation. He's also the judge. The apostles are judges. All of that. Yeah, very good points. All right, we're chatting with uh, John Martinoni. Uh, Talk about the papacy and his new book, Blue Collar Apologetics. More to come right after this. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-on Apologetics. We're chatting with John Martinoni, talking about his latest book, The Blue Collar Apologetics, put out by EWTN Publishers. And, John, right at the end of the break, you made a really important point, and I think this is a very common tactic when you're talking about the papacy, is if they can't dislodge this idea that uh, Jesus is talking about Peter being the foundation stone, then they, they try to flip it and make it as if Peter's not important. You know, and one way they'll do that is uh, they'll say, well, Jesus is the rock, right? Or or another one is uh, the power to bind and loose. They, Jesus gives the power to bind and loose in Matthew 18, 18 to all the apostles. Yeah, and, and, and he does. However, what the Church would say, all the apostles in union with Peter, because he gave it first and foremost to Peter in Matthew 16, verse what? 17, 18, 19, somewhere in there. Uh, but the thing is, what's unique about Peter is in Matthew 16, he gives Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. He does not give that same authority, and keys represent authority. You know, if you have the keys to something, you've got authority. You, you can open those doors. And he gives that the keys to Peter. In Matthew 18, he does not give the keys to to all of the apostles. So it is Peter and Peter alone who is singled out. And, uh, yeah, so, so yes, they try to diminish Peter's role. And I'll give you an example. You know, uh, 
our, our, our good buddy, uh, Dr. James White, um, in his book, what is it? The Roman Catholic Controversy, I think it's called. Uh, I did something on it, uh, on a section of it in one of my newsletters not too long ago, where he was talking about Peter. And he was talking about, he had the, the passage from Luke 21, 31 to 32, where, where Jesus says at the Last Supper, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, say, Satan demanded to have you, or y'all, that he might sift y'all like wheat, but I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail, and when you, Peter, have turned again, strengthen your brethren. So Jesus singles out Peter to pray for him so that when Peter has turned, in other words, come back from his denial of Jesus, which Jesus knows is going to happen in a few hours, when Peter comes back from that, he is to be the strength for his brother apostles. Well, James White in his book had that and says, well, that, that was no big deal. Jesus was just telling Peter, hey, you know, um, help out your, your brothers when you get the chance. Uh, I'm like, are you kidding me? Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, I mean, think about it. Gary, you're sitting at a table with Jesus, and you've got the apostles John, uh, you know, Bartholomew, Andrew, James, all the all eleven apostles, other than Peter. You're you're taking Peter's place for the moment, and he says, "You, Gary, you know, Satan wants all of you guys. He wants to sift all of you guys like we. But I have prayed for you, Gary, so that when you have returned, when you have turned, you will strengthen your brethren. Would you be sitting there going, oh, that's no big deal. He, he's saying that to everybody. No, he is singling you out. Jesus singles out Peter at the Last Supper for a special role, and all James White can do is say in his book, The Roman Catholic Controversy, oh, it was really no big deal. You know, that, that's so what? He's just telling Peter, hey, help out when you get a chance. You know, it's like, are you kidding me? So, yes, they try to diminish the role of Peter. And they, they'll go to excesses on that. Like, like with Mary, they try to diminish her role, and, and they'll go to excesses. You know, one time I heard someone say, you Catholics and Mary, don't you know she was just an incubator for Jesus? You know, so they go overboard trying to diminish Mary, and they do that quite often with Peter trying to diminish his role as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, one common uh, move would be uh, immediately afterwards, Jesus says that he's going to have to suffer and die, and Peter says, God forbid, Lord, that it should not happen to you. And then Jesus says to him, uh, get behind me, Satan. So they'll say, see, how can you have a pope? And then Jesus calls him Satan like after he supposedly gives them all this authority. Absolutely, because it's not of Peter's own power and authority that he leads the church or does anything. It is by the power and authority of Jesus Christ. So even though Peter is a sinner, even though you know he tries to unwittingly and unknowingly discourage Jesus from his chosen path— and even though he later denies Jesus three times and, and does other things that are not so smart, it's not up to Peter's authority and power that this is all happening, that he's in charge of the church and has the charism of infallibility. It's the power and authority of 
God, of Jesus. That's why in Matthew 16, Jesus tells Peter after his confession that Jesus is, is the, the, the Christ. He says to Peter, he says, you don't know that of your own accord, but because of my Father has revealed this to you. So, again, it's the role of God in keeping the church together through the office of Peter. And I, I tell people, I say, look, read the first half of the apostles. It's all about Peter. Peter's the one who says Judas has to be replaced. Peter is the one who speaks to the crowds on the day of Pentecost, and, and 3,000 of them get baptized that day. Peter is the one who basically said, well, you don't have to do kosher anymore. Peter's the one who said we can preach to the, we can take the gospel to the Gentiles. You know, Peter is the one that they got the fish with the two coins, paid the temple tax for Peter and Jesus. Not for all the apostles, Peter and Jesus. Peter walked on water, the only human being to ever walk on water. Now, it wasn't for a real long time, but Gary, if I could walk on water for even five seconds, wouldn't people go, oh my gosh, it's a miracle. <laughs> so Peter walked on water. And you're going to tell me he doesn't have a special role to play in the, in the apostles as a whole and then in the larger church, the universal church? I just, you know, you, you have to have blinders, very thick blinders on to come to that conclusion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, especially uh, Peter's changed, like, after um, the post-resurrection appearance in John 21, you know, when Jesus tells him that, you know, he'll be the shepherd. When he gets to the Acts of the Apostles, he's a different individual. He's he's ready to lay down his life. You know, he's not this, uh, you know, uh, what do I want to say? You know, somebody who keeps putting their foot in their mouth and stumbling along. You know, he's, yeah. uh, he appears as a leader. Yeah, he's no longer fearful. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is upon him, is in him, and and he speaks forcefully, uh, fearlessly. You know, when when the uh, scribes and Pharisees tell him and John, after I think they put him in prison and whipped him and set him free and said, "Don't preach about that Jesus anymore." What they do? They walked out of the building and started preaching about Jesus. Uh, it says because we we go by what God says and not by what man says, and so you know. Peter just over and over and over is shown to be the leader of the apostles before the the crucifixion and resurrection and after the crucifixion and resurrection and especially after Jesus's ascension into heaven from the from the day of Pentecost on uh Peter is the one who leads the way opens the doors and just has at it yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in fact, you know, the book uh, Acts of the Apostles is like the first half is almost all about Peter, you know. Then, yeah. then Paul comes on the scene. It's really remarkable if he was just an ordinary, you know, apostle with no particular authority whatsoever. Yeah, and, and we see in Galatians 1 what happens. Paul goes down to Jerusalem. Why? For a vacation? To, no, to see Peter. So Paul came to Peter. Oh, so why? Because Peter is the leader of the church. And Paul wants to go to Peter, and, and 
basically present his, his street cred to Peter and say, hey, this is what I'm teaching, this is what I'm doing, and get essentially Peter's approval and blessing. And so Paul came to Peter, Peter did not go to Paul. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know what? Uh, I think we'll stop there. Maybe next time when we come back, we could talk about uh, papal infallibility because that, that's a whole fun topic in and of itself. But yeah. uh, before we close, though, you mentioned your newsletter. I want everybody to to sign up. Tell us a little bit about the newsletter. The newsletter is a lot. It's a lot of my conversations, dialogues, debates, whatever you want to call them, with uh, uh, non-Catholic pastors, apologists, a Baptist, evangelical, fundamentalist, etc. Uh, some of James White's followers, not James White himself yet, maybe one day, uh, some famous uh, Protestant apologists. And I go through and I show people, I said, I'll give you know, the, the argument against the Catholic teaching, I'll give my response, and then I give a strategy. Well, this is why I said what I said. This is why I asked the question that I asked. This is why I'm, you know, I did this and did that. So it's it's filled with again common sense, uh, simple logic, verses from the Bible. It teaches Catholics how to go out and do this on their own. And you just you go to the website BibleChristianSociety.com, BibleChristianSociety.com. Go to the newsletter page and you can just sign up. It comes. I send out on average once every two to three weeks, you know, so maybe 20, 22 issues in a year. And you don't get, you know, regular emails asking for money or anything like that. It's just, here's the apologetics. Here's what we do. It's called Apologetics for the Masses, uh, BibleChristianSociety.com on the newsletter page. Excellent, excellent. And where can people go to get a copy of Blue Collar Apologetics? They can go to SophiaInstitute.com, the Sophia Press website, or to EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com, and you just type in Blue Collar or Blue Collar Apologetics, uh, and, and the book will pop up right there, and you can, you can have at it. Yeah, there you go. And, uh, yeah, it's a fantastic book. I, I'm so excited Thanks. that you wrote it because, you know, over the years, just following your work, I, I kept thinking over and over, Man, it would be great to have a, a bound resource that we could access all your arguments and thoughts on the matter. And here it is. There it is. Yeah, all right. Well, John, hey, thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. My pleasure, Gary, as always. All right, John Marnoni, the book is Blue Collar Apologetics. Check it out, folks. If you don't have a copy, I highly recommend you pick one up. Wow, the hour's flowing. Coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talk coming at you with the Terry and Jesse Show. Thank you so much for listening, and God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow to this thing we call Hands on Apologetics. Bye-bye, everybody. Have a great day.